You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just uh, one co-host, Aaron Lammer. Rare Aaron's basement taping, pre-NBA finals. I feel good being in your basement. Thank I, you. I want to talk to you about... Uh... You look like you're on sports radio, and I know that's <laughs> your native environment. <laughs> it's my <laughs> dream. Who is on the show this week? Uh, notable author John Grisham on the program this week. That is right. John Grisham. I've read his, more of his books than almost anyone else's books. Definitely the first adult books I ever read. The Firm, The Pelican Brief. I was deep on John Grisham as a young man. Uh, he has a piece of nonfiction out also. You talked about that. He, he wrote a nonfiction book a couple years ago. We talked about that. We talked about whether like journalism ever held any appeal. He wrote his first book at 30. He was in... He was a state rep in Mississippi. He's a politician. Like, he's, uh, he's an interesting guy, and it was really fun to talk to him. It was, uh, it was kind of surreal, actually. We additionally have something special to announce. Tell us about this, Max. Tell us about what I'm looking at on your computer screen. Longtime listeners of this podcast will know that we are uh, old friends with the great people at MailChimp, and this summer we are teaming up. We are doing a little project with them. It's called Read This Summer, and uh, it's all going to culminate at the Decatur Book Festival, Labor Day weekend. MailChimp and the Decatur Book Festival have asked us, Longform, to uh, bring some of our favorite writers to the Decatur Book Festival to talk about their books and their work. Let us read this list of authors. Yes, uh, many of these people have been on our show. Uh, Wesley Lowry. True. Heather Haverleski. All Aaron Lammer episodes. <laughs> I really must have played a heavy hand in this planning. Uh, Ty Bowie, uh, Luke uh, Dietrich. Uh, Dory Shafrir from BuzzFeed is coming. Krista Tippett, host of On Being. Listen to her episode. Elif Batuman is coming. It's just gonna be. It's gonna be great. I don't know why they let us do this, but they let us do it. Uh, Decatur is the uh, ancestral home of Mailchimp. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, Mailchimp is based in Atlanta. Decatur is right outside. And uh, this is the third year they've done it. The first year, Roxanne Gay picked the authors. The second year, Alexander Chi picked the authors. And uh, this year, it's us. If people want to follow along, there's all these great books to read this summer. Go to readthissummer.com. That is readthissummer.com. Mailchimp has built a beautiful website. And uh, it's going to be a fun summer. I'm really looking forward to that. I'm also really looking forward to hearing this interview that I never saw coming between you and John Grisham. Here is Max and John Grisham. John Grisham, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, I feel like your sort of early days have been pretty well documented, mm -hmm. but I feel like we should run through them here for anyone who hasn't listened uh, born in Arkansas, right? Uh, worked a bunch of different jobs, all jobs with your hands for a while. Mm -hmm. Decided that jobs with your hands were not for you. Yeah, I was too lazy for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, went to college, Mississippi State. Mm -hmm. Majored in accounting. Mm -hmm. That was that's the first place where I got tripped up. I'm interested in like in um, uh, what your ambitions were at these various stages. So like when you were a, an accounting major at Mississippi State, what did you want to be doing? Well, I went to uh, I studied accounting with the goal of going to law school to become a tax lawyer. The only part of accounting I really enjoyed was income tax. Uh, I don't know why. Um, for the life of me, I don't know why. Uh, but I thought it would be a good idea to get a law degree and then become a tax lawyer and make a lot of money representing people who did not want to pay their income taxes. Uh, I didn't know any wealthy people. Uh, <laughs> back then, I sure didn't. I don't know where the dream came from. At the same time, my dad, who was a cotton farmer when I was born, and a, a bulldozer operator and a diesel mechanic when I was growing up, he became a salesman, and he finally had his own business by the time I was 20. And the business had a lot of potential. It was heavy machinery, selling heavy machinery. And I thought, this is going to be cool. And, you know, my dad's got a business going, and I, you know, I, might, I, might, I may end up here. 
it may be a good idea. And so I wanted to know how to, you know, uh, work the books, right. the accounting, the finance, things like that. So that, that's what went into the decision. Uh, but it was really about business law. Uh, and I had the chance to go to law school. My, my, my parents had worked hard. And I was the first one to go to college in my family. And, and, and they loved the idea of me being a lawyer. And so I was getting that sort of encouragement at home. Were you thinking about writing at all? Never. Never. It was never a childhood dream. It was not something I studied in college. It was not. It came later in life. Uh, Nowhere on your screen. No, none. I was going to be a major. I was going to play for the Cardinals. Okay, I was play, <laughs> like every kid on my street. You know, that was my. Yeah, I was going to play for the Red Sox too. Yeah. Okay. My dreams in college. The first two years of college, I didn't have any dreams. I was uh, so happy to be away from home. <laughs> I grew up in a very strict Southern Baptist, you know, household. Great parents, great churches, great family. But I really wanted to get away from that for a while. And so suddenly I was off at college and I could do whatever I wanted to do. And I did. And so the first two years, my grades suffered. I was drifting and didn't really have a goal. And, and then finally got some traction when I was 20 years old. Got into law school at Ole Miss. Mm -hmm. uh, barely. Barely. <laughs> Graduated and then spent 10 years practicing law. Mm -hmm. Right. And what, age 28, you got elected to the House of Representatives? August of 1983. I was 28 years old. And got elected to the state house in, in Mississippi. What were those the that guy's uh, ambitions? What were those dreams? Um, there were never any big political aspirations. Uh, I really, didn't want, I didn't want to be governor. Uh, when I was growing up in Mississippi, especially in high school and in college and in law school, I remember being embarrassed because it was the last state. It was the only state with no public kindergarten system. The educational system was so bad that I thought, you know, maybe I can uh, make a change. Maybe I can do something to make it better, maybe improve the state. The state was behind in so many areas. And I had several buddies in law school, and we talked about it. And we all got elected, and we all ran for the legislature. We all got elected. One, one guy got elected governor, one of my friends. So it was, that, it was, that, it was really an uh, um, honorable mission to seek public office in Mississippi to try to bring about change. I was not thinking about a big office. I, I just didn't, never was. I didn't really like the job, to be honest. Um, I enjoyed the campaigning, the contest, the counting of the votes. That was pretty fun. Uh, I was also running against a guy who'd been there for 24 years and needed to be retired. Uh, and I was young. You know, I was 28. He was, whatever, 60. Uh, but I, I thought he needed to be retired. And uh, got, I really got into the competition of the campaign and being able to hustle and, and get votes and blocks of votes and all this and that. And, um, you were into the tactics of it. Yeah, that was fun. That was a lot of fun. And, and But almost immediately, once I had the job, I didn't like it. I just didn't like it. I, I didn't like being uh, at everybody's beck and call. I didn't like being a public figure. I didn't like answering to the voters. I didn't like people always wanting something. Once you get elected, everybody wants something. And it's usually a job. And I had no staff, no secretary, no nothing. I mean, I couldn't. I, just, I, got, I got to where I didn't like the voters. And when you're a politician <laughs> and you don't like the voters, you probably need to find something else to do. You might have be been a little trouble. Were you thinking about writing then? My first thought of writing came in, yeah, came in uh, the fall of 1984. So I was 29, almost 30 years old. And I was inspired by a horrible crime that happened in our little small town. And I was living the life that you probably came to see in The Time to Kill, small-town lawyer in Mississippi trying to survive. And so I thought about this, you know, change a few facts, and I thought this would be a great trial for the young lawyer to have this, you know, sensational trial with everybody watching. And uh, I became obsessed with that story. And um, one day I was actually driving home from the state capitol in Jackson, and uh Stopped at a uh, roadside place and got a cup of coffee and filled up with gas and got back on the interstate, Interstate 55, and I said, okay, you've thought about it long enough. Let's try and write this story. And um, that's when I started, Time to Kill, fall of 84. I had never written before. Now, being a lawyer, you have to write a lot of stuff. Sure. It's not exactly supposed to be entertaining, though. No, it's not. It's very dull. That's why most lawyers are not very good writers because they, they, they're just too dull. They're not very... Uh, intriguing, but even when I was a young lawyer, I'd get so frustrated with the correspondence uh, with other lawyers, with all the legalese and big words and BS and all this kind of stuff. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to write as cleanly, as efficiently, as sparsely as possible with 
the right words and not too many of them to convey what I'm thinking. I love John Steinbeck. I love, I grew up reading his novels in high school. And I love John Steinbeck's writing because it's, it's clear, as, as opposed to Faulkner. We had to read Faulkner in Mississippi. So we, you know, we were reading Faulkner. I had no idea what was going on. So I, I thought, I want to write clearly and efficiently. That, that was as a young lawyer. So when I started writing the novel, it, it just it came natural. There's a confidence in those two decisions that I'm interested in. Like running for office at 28, mm-hmm. it's not a lot of 28-year-olds who think they're ready to be a... Uh, it shouldn't be against the law, by the way, to, to <laughs> seek office at 28. Okay, but you did it. Yeah. And then uh, 29, mm-hmm. I'm just going to take my hand up uh, writing novels. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's, some, there's some confidence there. You know... I played sports all through high school, and I was good enough to always make the starting team. I mean, I was not good enough to play in college, which I wanted to do in all three sports. We only had three sports back then. Nobody ever heard of soccer and stuff like that. But, I mean, I had the confidence, I guess, because of that. And I always made decent grades, not great grades, because I didn't want to study too hard. But I guess that gives you a certain amount of confidence. Um, A lot of it was athletics, though. Again, I wasn't. I wasn't a real good athlete, but I was, I was always good enough to be on the field. Uh, being elected at 28, being able to pull off a campaign at 28. <laughs> yeah, take that guy down. And, and it was a landslide. And so that was a, you know, that was a boost. The writing, I had no idea. I had no idea. However, when I started writing, I really started reading. I've always been a big reader. But I, I told myself, okay, you don't know what you're doing, so why don't you learn? And so I read everything on the bestseller list. Mm-hmm. I read all the bestsellers and, and paperback. I <laughs> couldn't afford hardbacks. And I remember dozens and dozens of books, and I would read them, and, and I would, all the, all the writers, you can, we can name them, okay? And I would read a book that was pretty bad, and I, and I would think, you know, I can beat this, you know? And I would read a book that was really good, and I would say, well, I'm never going to be that good, but there's somewhere on that list for me. So I guess that took a lot of confidence. So that, the, <laughs> the bad books kept me going because they inspired me to, to keep plugging along. It took three years to write the first book. And you were doing it in the morning before you went to work? Yeah, evenings, yeah, I didn't, yeah. The law office back then, it was a very busy law office in a small town, uh, and it wasn't very profitable. But because I'd grown up there, and because I got elected from there, I had a lot of people who needed, who wanted my help. Most of them couldn't pay. And I always had trouble saying no. I just couldn't turn down somebody who needed help. And so I took a lot of cases that I, you know, never got paid for. Uh, so the office was real busy, wasn't profitable, but it took up a lot of my time. The legislature took up at least a third of my time. Renee was having babies. I mean, you know, the family, life was good. Life yeah. was good. But there was no time to write unless I carved out another hour or two in the morning. That's what I did. Hey, I'm going to put things on hold for a second tell you a little bit about the sponsors making today's show possible. First up, Casper. And if you don't know what Casper is, allow me to fill you in. The Casper is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. They've got this supportive memory foam that creates an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. You can try Casper for 100 nights risk-free in your own home. Imagine if you had to go try it uh, for 100 nights somewhere else. That would be terrible. But that's not what Casper's doing. Casper's letting you try a mattress in your own home. If you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit. you got free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada and over 20,000 reviews with an average of 4.8 stars. This is the Internet's favorite mattress. I've got one. It is super comfortable. It comes in a box somehow. I don't understand how they did it, but they got this whole mattress in a box. It showed up in my house. I just opened the box. I had a mattress. I didn't have to go to the store or anything. It really was super, super easy. And now I sleep great. You can get 50 bucks off any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash longform and using the offer code longform. Again, you get 50 bucks off any mattress purchase at casper.com slash longform. Terms and conditions. They apply. Speaking of uh, apply, I suggest you apply yourself. Finally, do that big idea that you've been kicking around and count on Squarespace to help you create an eye-catching online platform that brings it to life. 
Whether you need a portfolio to showcase your work, a store to sell your products and services, or a uh, website for your new podcast, Squarespace gives you everything you need to look like an expert right from the start. You can even get a unique domain. That strengthens your brand, makes it easier for visitors to find you. So uh, here's what you should do. You should go to squarespace.com, start a free trial. When you are ready to make a purchase, enter the code LONGFORM. You're going to get 10% off. Again, that's LONGFORM for 10% off your first purchase. You can start a free trial right now, squarespace.com. There is not an easier way to get your website off the ground. You do not need to know any code. Just go try it. Squarespace.com. Apply yourself. Let's get back to John Grisham. So if you were reading the bestseller list, that must have been the ambition then. Was that, was that the goal? Yeah, I don't think I ever had any desire to be William Faulkner or um, a great literary hero. I, I read Steinbeck and Fitzgerald and, and um, Hemingway. We had to read those in high school. I never saw – was not enthralled with those books, maybe Gatsby. Uh, Grapes, Grapes of Wrath, certainly. Uh, I was uh, that's one of my still one of my favorite books. So, but I just you know I, I read about those guys and and I knew a lot of the Faulkner legend. I knew how the guy struggled financially. He and he and Fitzgerald were both in Hollywood in 1940, cranking out bad screenplays, trying to pay the bills. I, I don't want to write stuff that that's not gonna have find an audience. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna start losing two hours of sleep every morning, I want to write something that people enjoy reading. I'm, and I read a bunch of police uh, procedural uh, books and, and mysteries and detective stories and espionage. and stuff. I, I was reading all the fun stuff that sold. And that's the side of the street I came down on. That's where I still am. I'm not going to leave it. Was there a similarity in the way you approached writing and the way you approached that political campaign in that you were interested in the, in the tactics? I don't recall making that connection, no. There, there, there were two separate events in my life, the writing and the, and the politics. So it took uh, three years— Nights, weekends, five in the morning to finish A Time to Kill. You found a publisher in New York, small little publisher. Mm-hmm. First run was 5,000 copies. Mm-hmm. The legend, as, as I understand it, is that the day after you finished A Time to Kill, you started working on the firm. Is that true? Just about. Uh, just about. By the time, it's funny, I've, I've realized this over the years, when I finish one book, I get to the very end, I start thinking about the next one. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I did that back then. It was so long ago, but I had this idea for the next book. And it was an idea that my wife really liked. It was called The Firm. It was just, it was a, that was the working title of a story that I didn't think the title would ever stick. And uh, I, I shipped the, the, uh, the thousand page manuscript of A Time to Kill up here to New York to my agent. And I, and I FedEx. So I called the next day. I said, Hey, you, you got the, you got the manuscript. Yeah. And he, he said, yeah, don't call me every day. He said, don't, don't be calling me every day. He said, I got stuff to do. He said, look, I, I'm going to sell this book. It's going to take us some time. Uh, in the meantime, you start writing another novel. By the time you finish it, I will have sold a time to kill, and it'll keep you busy, and you won't be calling me every day. And I said, okay, fair enough. And I, saw, I started writing The Firm right then. And he was exactly right. It took two years to write The Firm. And I was almost finished with it when uh, Time to Kill came out in June of 1989. I was almost uh, done with the firm. When did you realize that the firm was going to change your life? One phone call. uh, The first uh, Sunday in uh, January of 1990. So six months after Time to Kill was published, and it flopped. Time to Kill didn't sell. How many copies did that first run sell? Do you remember? I'm not sure they printed 5,000. I I bought 1,000 of the 5,000. And when The Firm came out in March of 91, you could still go to bookstores in Mississippi and in Memphis around there, and you could see A Time to Kill on, in the store for sale for eighteen ninety five. And I bought a bunch of them in eighteen ninety five. So it didn't sell. I mean, it just didn't sell. There was never any uh, talk of going back for a second printing, no talk of paperback, no foreign deal. No, it, was, it was a flop. You know, and I told my wife, I said, look, I'm going I'm, I'm to do it one more time. You know, I'm going to write one more book. And if it, hopefully something, you know, more commercial, more accessible, more popular. If this doesn't work, forget this career. Forget this, forget this hobby. I'm going to just be a lawyer and, you know, and get on with it. But late in 1989, when the firm was, uh, had been seen by a few folks here in New York, and there was no, there was no demand for it. There was no, no offer for it. A copy of it popped up in Hollywood, of, of the, you know, 600-page manuscript. And... Um, a guy got it in Hollywood and made 25 copies and sent to the studios. 
and he was acting like he was my agent. I never met the guy. And uh, he got nervous when they started making offers. And so my agent in New York got involved and, and through Christmas and, and New Year's, and no one bothered to contact me. Uh, and I, this is all before the book even came out? Oh, well, there was no book deal. I, I, I didn't know if the firm was going to be published as a book. I had no idea. And uh, finally, the first week in January of 1990, it got really crazy. At the last minute, uh, my agent here in New York thought to call me and said, um, oh, by the way, uh, I need your authority to take the highest offer for the film rights to the firm from Universal Pictures, Paramount Pictures, or Disney Touchstone. And I said, what about the book? He said, we'll talk about it later. This is for the movie. And I said, okay. And we sold, we, we sold that day to Paramount. Well, once the word got out that there was a movie deal, the publishers, you know, perked up. Mm-hmm. And we sold, we sold the, the uh, North American rights two weeks later to Doubleday. And then a week later, we sold the British rights. And this thing starts marching around the world, language by language by language. And, and, and in no time, I had earned over a million dollars uh, for the firm. And you know, I was as broke then as I'd been five years earlier when I started writing the Time to Kill. So, that, yeah, that was, that was a game changer. What did that feel like? Total euphoria, total euphoria. It was t- it was a it was magical. It was uh, uh, it was hard to believe. It was hard to believe. And then then right before the firm came out in March of ninety one, and, and the, the firm had tremendous buzz behind it. There was a lot of you know a lot of pressure behind the book when it came out. Doubleday printed the first time thirty thousand copies. Went back for twenty more before pub date because the buzz was so strong. Right before the book came out, the uh, editor, David Gurnert, who has been my agent now for 22 years, he was elevated to editor-in-chief of Doubleday. And a week before the firm came out, he he called me and said, we want to lock you in for two more books. And again, that had not dawned on me that might happen, but suddenly I had a contract for two more books and we were off the races. Did you care what people thought of it or were you just excited that it was doing so well? I was excited. And the excitement has been so um, overwhelming for a long time. And if now the fact that I entertain so many people is so rewarding. I don't care what anybody says about it. I mean, I just don't. Have you ever cared? I, yeah, uh, yes, I have cared. When the, fir- when the Time to Kill came out, only a handful of publications. Uh, Kirkus gave it a great review right off the bat. And um, maybe another newspaper, but my hometown newspaper, the Memphis Commercial Appeal, the newspaper, newspaper I grew up with, gave it a big review and trashed it. Just a mean, spiteful review that really hurt. I mean, it really, really hurt. It was cheap shots, and you know, I, I, I was ready to kill people. So yeah, that hurt. The firm got generally good reviews. And when I knew the next book was going to get trashed, whatever it was, so so I, I hurried. I got the Pelican brief out, you know, pretty fast. And and at some point in that period of time, I just said, "Look, life is too short. Life is too good to worry about these bad reviews. Just you know, ignore them. Don't read them. Just just don't read them. Don't read the good ones. Don't read the bad ones. Just ignore the reviews and do what you enjoy doing. Write the books. Entertain a lot of people." And don't take yourself too seriously. It seems very healthy. It's been very healthy. It's been very stress-free. I don't care what professional critics say about the books. I, and, man, for the most part, I don't know. Can I go back to that moment between uh, Time to Kill and The Firm for a second? In your new book, uh, Camino Island, the main character is named Mercer Mann, and she's a novelist, a writer, and it feels almost like she is you if the, if like the second book hadn't come. Uh, I mean, she's written one sort of critically acclaimed right, book right, right. that didn't sell at all. Right. Struggling, she's an adjunct professor. It's like not really working out. Right. And I wondered whether writing that in some way was a little bit of like a, you going down the path of what would have happened if, if like that crazy lottery break hadn't come. I don't know. It's not that. What, what, was, what was fun to write about Mercer and fun to write about the whole book is I'd been there. I'd been that writer with one book out, and it didn't sell, and and the uncertainty. Luckily, I had a career. I had a wife and kids I had to produce, and you know, I, the pressure was on. Uh, Mercer feels pressure because she's she's drowning financially. You know, she's trying to survive, teaching here and there, whatever. So, I mean, I, 
I, I was never in that position, but I certainly understand it. Mm-hmm. And I've had friends, a lot of friends uh, uh, along the way, and even today, friends who are uh, really struggling. I feel sorry for them. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, it's a tough business. But, but I, I, I've seen it, a lot of it, for 25 years. So Mercer was easy to write about because I, I know the territory. But you never really wondered about that for yourself? What would have happened if your deal with Renee, that it was going to be one more book, and if it didn't sell, you were done? Like, what, what would have happened if it didn't sell? What I think about is this. The times when I'd walk into a bookstore, and I'd see all these beautiful new releases and bestsellers, and New York Times list bestsellers, and I would just die, and I would say, you know, there's no room for me, and who wants to hear from me? What have I got to say that they, they're not already, that's not already been said? And uh, I would get, you know, deflated and put the book down for a couple, three weeks and uh, sleep in, you know, <laughs> sleep past five. And uh, that happened several times. And Renee and I have had many laughs over the years thinking about what would have happened, where, where we would be if, if I had not finished it. And because if I hadn't finished the first one, I would have written the second one. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, and you know what would be okay? We had a nice life. Mm-hmm. We were... We had a nice life. We were very happy. Our families were nearby. We had beautiful kids and healthy kids, and life would have been good. Still would have been practicing law? Dad, I probably would, would have become a judge. Uh, I had my eye on a judge's position that was about to become available, and I was thinking about that. So if I had become that judge probably at about the age of 32 or 33 and, and held that position for some time. By the time, probably not Clinton, but by the time Obama took office in 2008, I would have been 53 years old, and I would have been jockeying for a federal judgeship. Mm-hmm. That's probably the route that could have gone. Uh, and that would have been fine. You know, it's, it's a great job. Writing a book every year is a great job, too. I got the best job. I got the, be- I got the best job I know about. Uh, I, can, I can write one, two, or three every year and none. And... Uh, write about anything I want to write, and uh, it's, it's a great gig. Let's talk about that, about being able to write whatever you want to write. You've sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 million books, which is just a uh, kind of mind-boggling number. I don't, I don't know who's counting them, but uh, <laughs> it sounds good. I'm not <laughs> counting them. We'll take it. With that kind of audience, right, with that kind of reach, that kind of platform, how do you balance writing books that are designed to entertain and writing books that carry message have a point, have a point of view. I feel like some of your work is in one camp and some of your work is in the other. And and I wonder how you make that choice, how you strike that balance. Well, you're right. It's two types of books. Uh, it's the um, Graham Greene call them the entertainments, like Camino Isla. It's pure entertainment. And those are enjoyable to write and probably more fun to read. Uh, occasionally, I'll take an issue, whatever the issue is, mass incarceration, wrongful conviction, usually something dealing with the law, obviously, mm-hmm. because that's what I know. And take an issue and put it, you know, in the forefront, middle of a novel, and weave a novel around it. And um, how do you choose those issues? It's a process. I keep a list. I keep uh, files filled with newspaper articles and magazine articles and research papers I get from people. And uh, there's no shortage of when it comes to problems with our uh, legal system and our penal system and social injustice. There are there's no shortage of issues. Look at today's paper. You know, there could be a novel about the opioid crisis. There could be a novel about mass incarceration. There could be a novel about people who are about to lose their insurance, people who are about to lose their pensions. There's no shortage uh, yet. I mean, I, I've yet to hit the brick wall and have, have a writer's block like Mercer. Um, my, the book I'm finishing now, The Legal Thriller for the Fall, is about student debt. Yeah, I read that. Yeah. It's a fascinating problem. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking but because Congress has been so lax with the lending. You've got you know, $1.3 trillion in student debt out there and a million kids each year going to default. And, and you've got kids who have borrowed way too much money because it was easy to borrow. And they can't pay it back. And they can't get jobs. And they can't. It's ruined their lives. And um, how, did, how did you gravitate there? Was there... Is there someone you met? Is it just reading it in the paper? Like, how, how does that become the thing you get focused on? It was a story about a, in fact, in fact, there's a uh, magazine article, I think it was in the Atlantic, called The Great Law School Scam. Mm-hmm. It's all about student debt as it relates to for-profit law schools. There are a bunch of for-profit law schools in this country and for-profit colleges uh, like Trump University, okay? For and so you can, you can borrow if it, 
they they charge the tuition. They set the tuition. If they if they want to charge fifty thousand bucks a year, they they charge fifty. And if you're the student, you go to the government and borrow the money. You'll get it. Okay, take the fifty thousand, give it to the to the for profit school. It turn it ends up in profits. Okay, it's it's a it's a racket. It's a great law school scam. So you, so you read these articles, get fired up, and then what's your process? Get really fired up. Get really fired up about something. Uh, well, the process once a story hits, you go, "Wow, this is, this could be good." Uh, a lot of other research. Not, I don't do in-depth academic research. I, yeah, that's that's not what my readers want to read. They want to read the just enough under the surface to get the full grasp of what the, of the law, the issue, or the problem, whatever, without getting bogged down in a lot of academic stuff. How do you know them that well? How do you know your reader that well? Well, I know what I like to read, and I know the mistakes that most, a lot of writers make, especially lawyers. Lawyers are pretty good writers. They have to be. They're pretty good storytellers. Uh, but a lot of them drop the ball writing fiction because they, they want to show you how much they know, mm-hmm. and it's a common problem. And I just, you know, I, you can't get too deep if you're trying to turn pages, if you're trying to entertain and get to the end of the story. It's a matter of pacing and plotting and planning, and it all goes back to thinking about the story before you write the first word. I don't give advice, but I tell writers and students all the time, don't write the first word until you know the last scene. It's impossible. Over the course of six months, eight months, ten months, in a 400-page manuscript, you can't predict everything. You don't want to. It's, it's always a lot of fun to see what uh, happens that you didn't anticipate. One character that you thought was minor becomes major. One character, you know, you gets killed. You know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the fun part of, of writing. But you always, you always know where you're going, and so you can't get lost. And writers are notorious for spending two years with a great idea, and then wake up one day with a pile of papers and can't and they can't finish the story. That's ridiculous. I mean, happens all the time, but not to me. Can we go back to um, knowing your audience for a second? Mm-hmm. You sell so many books that uh, feels to me like that you were in uh, sort of a rare, it's a pretty small room of people that are talking to that many Americans. Mm-hmm. And especially right now with however many cliches I can come up with about how stratified the country is, feels to me like you are talking to uh, one cliche would be both Americas. Part of what I'm wondering is how you figured out how to be able to speak to all of those people without completely excluding politics from your work. Like they're, they're, you're taking on student debt. That's right. like a campaign issue. Um, how do you do that and not get caught just talking to one side? Well, you can't, uh, you, you can't be too intrusive with your politics because you cannot assume that everybody shares your politics. But if you, take a, if, you, <laughs> if you take a story about a wrongful conviction where some guy spent 20 years in prison, it's kind of hard to argue the other side. You know, it's really easy to get angry about that, about what happened and go back and replay what the police did, what the prosecutor did, where the system broke down and tell that story. And and most folks are going to be on your side. You know, most folks are going to feel a lot of empathy with the with the with the accused who spent the 20 years. Student debt. Who's going to argue the other side of it? The banks who are making the money that got the the, the for profit owners. That's a handful of people who are getting rich off this stuff. And they're the bad guys. But the way I write the stories, I'm not attacking any belief. I'm just telling a story. And again, it goes back to storytelling. It's first and foremost an effort to tell the story and turn the pages and entertain. And I've had people say, you know, I don't, I don't like your politics, but I enjoy your fiction. And I always say, well, I'm sure I don't like your politics. <laughs> you know, let's just agree to disagree. Mm-hmm. There's one, one non-fiction book. Yep, mm-hmm. on the roster, it's about a, a wrongful conviction. Yeah, the innocent man. Why just one? Well, I never dreamed I'd write nonfiction uh, because uh, it's just not what I enjoy doing. I love the fiction. I love to uh, create people and create places and not have to worry about being too accurate. Uh, with the innocent man, uh, I knew that uh, I'm not trained as a journalist. You know, it, I, I don't. The whole time I was worried if, if I have a fact here, somebody's told me something that I think is factually accurate but sensational. How many times do I have to verify it before I can use it? You know, I don't know. I, I never, I never answered that question. But I said, well, you better be careful. I also knew there was a very strong likelihood of litigation, and the, and and that happened after the book was published. So I was extremely careful. 
but I loved, I loved the story. I loved the story from the day I first saw it. And mm-hmm. I said, I got to write this story. With, with wrongful convictions, every one of them is a fantastic story because of the mistakes, the suffering, the loss, the pain, the injustice. Every wrongful conviction deserves to be its own book. And I just wish I had time to, you know, write them. Um, I, I don't. And I mean, the, that book took me 18 months to write. A novel takes six months. And, I just, and it took a lot of work. I mean, I've reviewed over 10,000 documents. And I had a full-time research assistant who was doing the same thing. And I just, um, maybe, you know, I'm not saying it's not going to happen in the future, but uh, I can't see it anytime soon. At the same time, I didn't see it coming. I got hit in the face with a story one morning when I saw the guy's obituary. And I said, right then, I'm going to write this story. What was different about that than, say, the Atlantic story on student debt? Like, why was that the one that you wanted to go report and write out rather than just take it, it, take was, it and do your thing? It just it was the timing of it. I had never, even as a, a lawyer who had represented lots of uh, criminal defendants and had a lot of them go to prison, never a death case, I had never stopped for a second to think about wrongful convictions. And I became obsessed with the issue and, and the stories and, and the, pro- the problem. The problem is what drives me crazy still. I'm on the board of the Innocence Project here in New York, and we, it's a very active board, and you know we, 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 we're trying our best to get innocent people out of prison. Mm-hmm. It's the one issue that still keeps me awake at night. Help me understand how you go between these worlds. Like, you're up here and... and having a board meeting with the Innocence Project, and then you're going back and writing, say, Camino Island, like an entertainment. How, how, do, how do you balance those two things? Like, how do, you, how do you spend some time in, you know, the deepest depths of human tragedy and then, like, come back and just spend time with, like, a great beach read? That's why I do it. That, that's why I do Camino Island. It's, it's to, just to have some fun. And that's what I do for a living. I tell stories. And I don't want them to all be dark. Uh, when a time to kill, no, no, uh, the firm, the firm came out, and then the Pelican Briefing client. Uh, there were several times when I read reviews that were not too flattering, and people would say, you know, this is nothing but a beach book, a beach read. And I've thought about it over the years. Okay, I'll show you a beach read. <laughs> I'll give you one. <laughs> so that's what Camino Island is—the ultimate beach read. That, that, you know, that, there it is. There's, no, there's nothing literary about it. I like the idea that, like, 20 years later, you're still kind of just making sure, like, yeah. checking those people. Yeah. Um, you're about to do this podcast. You're going to talk to writers. Mm-hmm. You're, you're on your first book tour in 25 years. Mm-hmm. What do you want to know from writers? Well, some of these guys I have not yet met. Uh, I'd say probably half of them I have met. But I want to – always intrigued by what they do, how they do it, um, the process – and their stories, how they got published, uh, what are they doing now, uh, what are they working on now? Uh, yeah, those are those are always fun conversations with the writers. And then we'll also talk about, um, you know, what else, what, what else have you read lately? What, what what good book have you read lately? We'll kick that around for a while. I want to I want to see these great bookstores and and talk to the um, owners wow. about well about book selling. Book selling is in you know it's been in uh, upheaval for twenty five years. And some stores, well, we've lost two or 3,000 stores in the past, you know, 15 years. Right. you got a lot invested in book selling. I have a lot of invested in book selling. And, Your uh, sales are what? Yeah, I think I read, you think they're about like half of what they were pre-2008? They were, yeah, but a little more than half of what they were before the Great Recession. And that's a, that's a factor, a combination of the recession itself. That people are just not spending as much, you know, disposable extra income. But also, we've lost so many bookstores. We lost 700 stores in one day when borders closed. Mm-hmm. 700 stores. Uh, uh, Barnes & Noble is closing a bunch of stores. You know, um, Used to, the old Walden bookstores in the mall and B. Dalton. When I had a new book come out, they would have a display in the front. You, you couldn't get in the store for all the stacks of you know, my new book right there or, or Stephen King's new book or Michael Crichton's new book. And we're, you know, they, were, they were there, and people bought them. Those stores are gone. And um, we've lost so many bookstores. However, you know, their independents are popping up and bucking the trend. And, and, and I kind of want to go see some of these stores and say thanks. I feel like we should say we're sitting on the 13th floor at Doubleday. We've got like a majestic view of Manhattan. 
How are you feeling about the book business right now? Well, you know, I, I'd have to. It's still a dream come true for me. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm able to write whatever I want to write and sell it at, at this level. And I'm, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I tell students and aspiring writers all the time, though. Yeah, it's hard. It's harder to get published, but publishing needs new material every year and, and, and new writers. And this year, a hundred new debut novels will come out. You know, and and if if you're writing good stuff, somebody's going to notice. So yeah, it's still tough though. It's still mm-hmm. tough, and I, I still feel like you know I'm I'm very very fortunate to be in this position. Does it feel healthy to you, book business? Uh, healthy. I don't know about that. You have five big publishers left after some mergers. They're probably all showing profits this year. Uh, it's a, it's a certainly a vibrant business. You know, I was at BA last week here in New York, and you walk through the convention floor, and you and you it's hard it's hard to say. You know, books are dying. They're not dying. They're we're always going to have books. There's so many, you know, so many problems with publishing that you could worry. I could worry about for a long time and not do any. It wouldn't help me. You know, <laughs> uh, all, all I can do is go home and write the next book. That's all I want to do is go home and write the next book and and make it the best book I've ever written. Camino Islands, your thirtieth. Well, actually, it's the 38th. Um, what? Yeah. I've written, th- this is my 30th novel. You've got one nonfiction, one collection of stories. That's 32. And I've got six of the kids' books. The kids' books, right. Uh, no, those are novels, too, so that's 38. Okay. So, uh, so, but but uh, Doubleday is making a big deal out of the fact it's my 30th novel. So that's what we're, we're using. That, that, all right. Yeah. Well, that's what I saw. Yeah. So we'll call it your 38th. What about this? Like, when you go back and write that next book, What's going to be hard about it? What's hard for you now? The difficult part is not the writing. The difficult part is choosing the story and putting together the outline to make sure it's going to work. And oftentimes it doesn't work. How often does that happen? That happens a lot. Like you'll get deep into an outline and realize it's not going to work? Yes. Oh, yeah. I've got a a file full of little outlines uh, that didn't work. And and what is fascinating, what I've learned is I'll have a great idea, some fantastic idea of something I see on you know on on the newspaper front page, TV, a change of factor two, and you've got a really compelling, great story. So I'll start outlining it, and let some time pass, let the thing kind of you know fester for a while, and then six months later you think, okay, there's no ending, there's no there's no ending, there's no way to sustain the tension for 300 pages, there's no way that's going to work, and so you put it down. That happens all the time. I got a bunch of uh, old outlines. But the writing's not hard. The writing is something I look forward to every day. When I'm in the groove, when I'm facing a deadline, when I know the words are coming, some days are better than others. Uh, if, 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 you know, some scenes are better than others, but some, some scenes that are not too compelling have to be written anyway mm-hmm. to, to make the story flow. And, and so there are times when I'm writing scenes that maybe it involves lawyers in court or ragging with judges or discussing issues or whatever like that that's kind of slow. I mean, if, I, if I'm not really into it, that's a sign to me. Maybe this is not something that the reader wants to read. You know, so let's, let's, one of the hardest things I do is write courtroom dramas. Mm-hmm. If you set through many trials, you get bored out of your mind. I mean, it's just not a whole lot of action. And I mean, I'd, I'd do that all. I have to write that stuff all the time and somehow keep it fresh and moving. And it's very difficult to do. That's one of my favorite things about your books is like, you always just skip the part that I would skip. <laughs> you know, That's... like there's no 15 page digression on someone's whole backstory. You get it done in like four sentences. Elmore Leonard, one of his rules of writing, he doesn't write the parts that people skip. <laughs> so that's bad. I've learned that over the years. Don't write the parts that people skip. Do you have rules of writing? Yeah. yeah. Lay them on me. Well, they're not rules, they're suggestions, do's and don'ts. Do write one page a day with no exceptions. Uh, that's about 200 words a day. That's about 1,000 a week. Do that for two years, and you've got a full-length novel. Nothing's going to happen until you're writing a page a day. You're fooling yourself if you're not writing a page a day. Um, don't write the first scene until you know the last scene. Do write your one page a day at the same place, same time, initially, wherever it is, same lunch break, early morning, on the train, doesn't matter. Lock it in and write your one page there. Don't write a prologue. I hate prologues. Why? Uh, but they're just gimmicks to, to hook you in. Uh, what what happens? They'll the, what Bruce Bruce says this, and I think does Bruce say this in the Camino Island? He, Bruce has given his rules of writing in Camino Island. 
the typical prologue starts off where you've got some really dramatic scene, a child in danger or a stalker or something. You know, there's a fever pitch and it stops, stops. And then they go to chapter one, which is has nothing to do with the prologue. And then chapter two, which has nothing to do with chapter one or the prologue. And then chapter three, when you're about 40 pages in, they slam you back to the prologue that you've forgotten by now, okay? It's just a gimmick, so I hate prologue. Uh, do use quotation marks with dialogue. I mean, it's just really basic stuff. Uh, don't. Don't, uh, don't keep a thesaurus nearby. You've got one at your fingertips, okay? I know that. There are three types of words. Words we know, words we should know, and words that nobody knows. Uh, avoid the third category and be uh, careful with the second. Uh, a common rookie mistake is a you know a jaw-breaking vocabulary. Right. That's just it's 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 frustrating. Oh, don't talk about your novel. I wish I had a buck for everybody who said, "Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about writing a novel." Okay, well, don't talk about it until you've written it, got a contract, and it's going to be published. You have nothing to talk about. You have nothing to brag about. You know, don't talk your book to death. Don't don't tell me about your novel. <laughs> just go write the damn thing. I, th- I forget how many of these. That's that's most of them. When you go back to write this next book, like, will you feel pressure? It's already written. I'll take that as a no. I turned in last week. Let me ask that in a more general sense. Okay. When you sit down to write books, when now you're on 38, do you feel pressure to be John Grisham? Are you still competitive? The only pressure I feel is to is the pressure of writing a very compelling, entertaining story. And I keep waiting for the day when I write a book and um, my wife and or my agent, David Gurnett, says, it's not working. This this is not working. I've gotten in that before. I wrote 100 pages one time of a novel 15 years ago. And my wife said, I really don't like these people, any of them. And I said, well, I think you're wrong. So I sent it to David in New York. And he said, I really don't like any of these people. I said, okay, I'm not going to fight both of you. <laughs> so I put it down, didn't write it. Uh, but I, my, the only thing I really fear is to write a book and have the people who matter, people close to me in publishing, and also the readers say, eh, this is not, this didn't work. This didn't work. This is a bad book. That's what I worry about. I have one more question for you. Uh, I just kind of have to ask this. Uh, and this may be like impolite or gauche, but I, I just I gotta ask you. We uh, we have writers on the show. This is going to be episode two hundred and fifty something. Uh, we talk about money on the show a lot. Uh, many people who are in the writing profession are uh, struggling financially, and it's hard. It's hard to be a freelance writer. It's hard to be a journalist. Hard to be a magazine writer. I think I can pretty unequivocally say uh, you have more money than anyone will ever be on the show. So I just want to ask you a question about that. Is that okay? Well, maybe. What's what's the question? I kind of want to know like what I don't know about what it's like to have that much money. Is like what is different about your life? Well, we it's, it's made changes. We uh, I changed professions. I stopped practicing law, which was a big deal. We moved from our hometown where I grew up and where I worked for 10 years and where my wife is from to uh, we moved an hour away to Oxford, Mississippi and built our dream house and thought we'd be there forever. And in 1994, we moved again to a farm outside of Charlottesville, Virginia, sort of on a whim just to live for one year and try to hide and fell in love with the area. So we would not have made those moves, but for the financial success. It's made um, a difference in you know, things we buy, trips we take, you know, you reach a point where you can do anything. What has not changed is our common core in how we treat people, how we raise our kids. Uh, We, from the very beginning, we said, look, to each other, this is fun. It's financially rewarding. It's too good to believe. It's a dream come true, okay? In popular culture, all things are temporary. Whether it's film, music, books, sports, fashion, whatever, it all comes and goes. And one of these days, this is going to be over. It's going to end, you know. Don't know when. When it's over, let's be able to look back and say, we had a ball. We had a great time. We kept our feet on the ground. And we're the same people we are now as we were back then. And we raised good kids. And we treat everybody fairly. And that's the way we live. Now, it appears as though it's going to go on longer than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're still, you know, we're still riding high, but that's the way we live. 
we have a lot more stuff. You know, we, yeah, we have all this, you know, whatever you want. But it doesn't affect how we treat people. Has it had any impact on the choices you made as a writer? Sure. I would not write a book. I have not yet been tempted to write a book that I didn't think would sell. I just don't want to do that. I just don't want, I mean, I may do it. I may, I may one day want to write a story that has no commercial potential. I hope I have the guts to do it at that point. So far, I have not seen that story. John Grisham, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer. Aaron has a new podcast. It's called Stoner. It is the same Aaron Lammer you know and love from Longform on a whole new topic. I highly recommend it. It's really getting great. Go listen to it. Stoner, wherever you are listening to this podcast. Our third co-host, Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week, Courtney Harrell. Killing it yet again. Good job, Courtney. Our sponsors were Squarespace, Casper, and our old friends at MailChimp with whom we are doing a new, cool, exciting thing this summer. Uh, At the end of the summer, we'll bring in a group of our favorite authors to the Decatur Book Festival. That's going to be a blast. And in the meantime, if you go to readthissummer.com, that's readthissummer.com, you can check out their books. We're all going to be uh, reading alongside each other this summer, sort of like a book club. So go check it out, readthissummer.com. Thanks to MailChimp for uh, inviting us to do that. Before we go, uh, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to podcastlistener.com slash longform? That's podcastlistener.com slash longform. There's a uh, survey there, a couple short questions. It's really helpful to us. It allows us to sell some ads. Selling some ads allows us to do the show. Doing the show allows us to go do things like talk to John Grisham for an hour in a conference room at Double Day, which was just weird and fun. And uh, thanks to him for taking that time. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. Claude 3 from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point of the price performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skill and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who use Anthropic to navigate this new frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude, C-L-A-U-D-E, today. Jumpstart your genius with Claude 3 by Anthropic.